Well, we are coming towards the end of our Seeking God's Direction sermon series. Uh, it's been about four weeks or so, so we, we're looking at probably just this week and next. Uh, so just as a, a bit of a teaser of what's to come, uh, on March 8th, which is uh, a couple weeks out now, we're going to start a new series working through uh, the Old Testament book of Ruth, which is interesting. Uh, it's, a, it's an amazing little book, uh, and we'll see as, as we study there, we'll, we'll see uh, God's redeeming love. And how God works through situations to draw people to himself. And, and remarkably, as we study this book written thousands of years before Jesus, hundreds of years before Jesus at least, uh, we'll see uh, it point us to Jesus all the way through that. And we'll see just how much God loves the world through this little book. So if you are looking for something to start reading in your own quiet time, you can head to, head to Ruth. It's four chapters long. It doesn't take too long to get all the way through, but we'll spend a few weeks there. Uh, we'll then finish Ruth uh, after Easter, so we've got our, our celebration Sunday, which is the end of our kind of pledge window for this capital campaign, which is uh, actually Palm Sunday as well on April 5th. And then uh, we've got uh, Easter sermons as well, and then we'll, we'll wrap up Ruth and, and continue into the spring and summer. Well, so far in this Seeking God's Direction series, we, we've talked about the mission of Trinity Bible Church. And as we've talked about this building project and capital campaign, we really want to root all of it in mission. It's not about a building, it's not about uh, a physical address, it's about the mission of God. And we've said that here at Trinity, we, we are articulating that mission to say that we exist to see people transformed into fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. We've said that uh, all that we do at Trinity is to, to see that happen, seeks to, to serve and build and, and complete that mission. We want to see people transformed by Jesus working in their lives. We exist to see the hope of the gospel transform lives. And we'll do whatever it takes to see that mission accomplished. Everything we do wants to be rooted in that statement, including, as I said, this capital campaign and building project. The next week, then, we talked about a, a vision, and we don't have as, as clear a vision statement yet, but we talked about this idea of, of being a lighthouse, being a, an embassy where light just pours out of this building and blows the roof off and blows the windows out and, and brings the, the light and glory of Jesus to the Bow Valley. We want everyone we come in contact with, we want everyone in the Bow Valley to come in contact with the light of Jesus as God uses us to that end. And then we reminded ourselves that, that God himself is the ultimate giver. As James, uh, Jesus' half-brother, writes in, in his book in the New Testament, every good and perfect gift comes from God. And we said that, that we can be generous because God has been so generous with us. And during that, that week, a couple Sundays ago, we looked at four proofs, if you will, of God's generosity creation. We said he's, he's made this place for us to be, to, to show us just how generous he is, he is with us. And we looked at salvation, the, the idea that, that God loved the world so much that he gave. Sometimes I think we, we skip that giving part in John 3.16 and say, God loved the world so much he gave his son so that, no, no, let's hang out, hang out on gave just for a minute. God is a generous God. We looked at, at redemption, saying that, that all the, the heartache and the pain and, and all of our situations, God can redeem those things for his good. And we've got stories of that happening in our church, in our congregation. And that Sunday we looked specifically at, at Joni Erickson Tata, who's been a quadriplegic for 52 years now. And she said, you know what? I'm not sure I'd even be following Jesus if my accident hadn't happened. I would not change a thing, which is a remarkable thing to say. 
And we looked as well at invention, this idea that we've been created in God's image. And so like God created, we too have this desire to create things. And we look around us, we look at electricity, we look at stands, we look at our vehicle, all these things. God has created us to create. And it's a generous gift from him. Last week, we looked at what the Bible has to say when it comes to uh, our treasure, when it comes to finances and our money. And we kind of sorted into four overarching principles, each that had a challenge or a choice attached to it. And we started with the ownership principle, which says that, that all that we have isn't ours anyways. It belongs to God. And the challenge was that was if we, if we recognize that, if we believe that, because the Bible tells us that, and we said, because God is the owner of everything, I will faithfully steward, I will faithfully use the things that he has given me. I will use them well for his purposes, his glory. The second principle is the treasure principle. It says, uh, wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart is as well. And we'll look at that a little bit more today as well. And the challenge there is that because God has wired my heart to follow what I treasure, I want to put what he provides into what he treasures. I want to build his kingdom, not Sean's kingdom. We also looked at the wisdom principle, and we said, you know what, the the Bible talks as much about money as almost anything else. There's 800 different sections in the Bible, there's 2,000 verses or more in the Bible that talk about money and treasure and stuff. So we said, you know what, the Bible is perfectly capable of teaching us how to handle our money. And so the choice or challenge there is that because God has given us this wisdom, we'll practice what the Bible says about it. And finally, we looked at the contentment principle which has actually come up a handful of times in different ways in the last uh, several weeks and months. It says, you know what? God will help us to learn to be content no matter what our circumstances are. And the choice there is to say that, you know what? God is my greatest desire, and so I will find my contentment in Him as the source of all I need. Not in the next square feet, in the next kitchen rental, in the next new skis, new bike, new car, whatever it is. My, my contentment will come because God loves me. And ultimately, last week, we wrapped up saying, if there's one thing we take home, we can say that we can deal with our money either our way or God's way, but God's way is, is far better. So that's, that's where we've been. All of our, our sermons are online as well. If you miss one, I invite you to head to our website and, and catch up with them there. This morning, we want to talk uh, more specifically as we get a little bit closer to home in these kind of money talks, money series, about making kingdom investments, about giving but before we get into that, we need to orient this whole morning with two questions. Otherwise, I think we may, we may miss the point. We'll miss the, the crux of the message. So let me ask you uh, two questions. I'll post them out there. You don't have to respond to these. Um, but how we answer these questions will shape how you uh, deal with and how we reflect on the rest of the discussion this morning. The first question is this. Where is your heart? What does your heart chase after? See, as we alluded to last week, and I mentioned already this morning, Jesus talked a lot about money. He talked more about money than anything else, more than heaven and hell combined, Jesus did. And he often didn't waste any words. He would cut right to the chase. If you have a Bible with you, I invite you to open to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to sort of base ourselves there a little bit in the Sermon on the Mount and jump a few other places as well. But look at Matthew 6, verses 19 to 21. And again, this is kind of the heart of the treasure principle from last week where Jesus teaches this way. He says, Don't store up treasures here on earth, where moths eat them and rust destroys them, where thieves can break in and steal. But instead, store up treasures in heaven, where moths and rust cannot destroy, and thieves do not break in and steal. 
Because wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. And as we talked about last week, this, this is a, a profound spiritual reality. Even if these are, are common verses, you've heard them maybe preached a few times, maybe we've gone to the Sermon on the Mount, not too uh, far back here at Trinity, we, we've talked about these verses. But we do need to recognize just, just how true, I guess, these words are, that, that where we put our treasure, where we're, we're putting our things, where we're putting our efforts, is where we're putting our hearts. The flip side is true too, is, is where we put our hearts determine where we invest all of our other things as well. If your primary investment in this life is in things, in, in money for, months, for money's sake, if that's what you value most, that will impact your decision making and it will uh, in turn impact your heart as well. And so Jesus asks us this and, and teaches us this to, to kind of make us wrestle with this deep and penetrating question of, hey, where have you uh, taken your heart? Where are you putting your heart? And more important than that, where do you want your heart to be? Take some foresight and some planning of, of where we want it to be. See, if we want our hearts to be with God, then we need to treasure the things God treasures. We need to follow his guidelines. We need to submit to his principles and his instructions. And then we'll look at our things and we'll say, God, what do you want me to do with these things? What do you want me to do with what you have given me in the first place? How can I first and foremost manage my, my treasure, my, my finances, all that you've given me in a way that makes sure my heart stays with you and not chases after other things? See, it's, it's not bad to have stuff. It's not bad to earn an income. It's, it's not bad to possess things, but it's bad when those things possess you. It's not wrong to enjoy life. God has created us to, to have pleasure. The, he could have made food all taste bland. He could have taste, made coffee all taste like Tim Hortons, but there's eclipse down the road. God is a good God. It's not wrong to enjoy these things. It's wrong to live for the enjoyment. It's not wrong to have treasure it's wrong to treasure, treasure. And that's what Jesus is asking. Where is your heart? Which leads to the second question, who is your leader? Just a couple of verses down, this is how, how Jesus wrote, he said, or spoke. He said, no one can serve two masters. For you'll hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. In verse 24. This is another a profound truth and one I think maybe we like to ignore a little bit at times. That there is only one true leader in our lives. There's only one true God operating, operating in our world. As one writer notes, he says, you can no more follow two leaders or have two gods than you can walk in two directions at once. And when two things in your life are operating on different values, different priorities, taking you to different directions, you will have to choose. Jesus says here, you, you can't have it both ways. You can't serve both God. You can't love both God and your treasure, your stuff, your money. He says that God and money are like competing gods. They will lead you in different directions. And the reason is simple. They give different orders when they're in charge. They issue different commands over your life, if you will. 
See, if you want to obey uh, money alone, you can't help but disobey God because they're dramatically, uh, diametrically opposed systems. When, when money's in charge, the decisions you make are for, for more, for richer, for better, for newer, for all these sorts of things. And when money has more of a hold on your heart than God does, it becomes like a God. So what does the Bible say about how we can keep our hearts in check? Well, flip back a couple pages in your Bible to Malachi 3. Uh, again, we, we have touched on this text really quickly in the last couple weeks as well. But we're going to see some kind of foundational principles and words in, in a bit of a dialogue between God and his people. So Malachi 3, I'm going to start reading at verse 7 and read down to verse 11. This is God speaking through the prophet to the people. He says, Ever since the time of your ancestors... You've turned away from my decrees and you've not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? And God says, well, will a mere mortal rob God, yet you rob me? And the people ask, how are we robbing you? And God says, "In in the tithes and the offerings. You're under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Instead, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, and there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord God Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Now this is, a, a, again, an Old Testament text, but before Jesus, it was in a time of, of famine and, and the people were, were wrestling with God through the prophet through this. And there's, there's kind of five key words in this uh, passage that we read that we need to quickly define. And the word, first, the word tithe means literally 10%. It's a term used for, for taking the, the 10% of everything you own and giving it to God. It's, it's talked about also as the first fruits. This is the first thing you did with your money was you lopped off that 10% and, and, and gave it to God. It wasn't the last thing you did with what's left over. That's not the tithe. That's what they're talking about in this patch as, as the whole tithe. And it seems like God is addressing here that, that some of the people started to, to play around with this a little bit. In the sense, they were trying to maybe get away with less than the whole tithe. Well, is that pre-tax or post-tax? Is that like, what, what if I kind of fudge it here a little bit and not all the way there? But for God, it's not about pre-tax, post-tax. This is a heart issue. It says, do you, do you trust me with these things? This, uh, this issue speaks to the reality that you know what, even our very next breath is from God. And we are, we are truly honoring him as God with our tithe. And so God says, bring the whole tithe on everything you've been given and all that you've received. So that's the tithe, the first 10%. The second word uh, that comes up that we should talk about is the offering. This is anything that you gave over and above that. Now the tithe, the first percent, was considered to be kind of the bare minimum that anyone would dare to give back to God. It's the, the floor, not the ceiling. As we, as we look through the Old Testament text, and I read a couple different guys say this, you know what, the, the tithe is the, is the floor, and there were, other, there were other celebrations that people were expected to give to, the other times to give offerings, and, and typically, instead of 10%, that number might creep up to 20 or 30 or, or average about 23% a year with, with all that, that God was asking from his people. So this tithe was the first 10%. The offering was anything you gave above that. And we actually have a couple examples of that here at Trinity too, right? We, we do a Thanksgiving offering. We do a benevolent offering. And we're in the midst of a capital campaign that is above our tithes as well. 
Now, the way that you would either give either the tithe or the offering back then was to give to the storehouse. That's the next word we want to look at really quick. Now, the, the storehouse was attached to the temple back then. It was the place where the temple funds and resources and valuables were stored for use. The temple at the time was the designated place for the people to worship. That's where you came. You came to the temple. It was the center of the community of faith, and it was the center, uh, the central organizer for ministry of the people of God. Now, over time, after, after Jesus came and, and, and showed us what this should look like and, and left and left the church to us, to the apostles, the temple became the local church. And in 1 Corinthians 3, uh, Paul wrote to the church and to, to the church in Corinth, and he said to them, hey, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? And God's temple is sacred, and, and you are that temple. This is why throughout the New Testament, the, the tithes and offerings of the people that we, we see actually quite a bit they went to the church that they were a part of. And Jesus too said that the tithe was still important. Because when, when God's people don't do this, when they keep everything God gives them, or they don't use it as God asks them to, it's a serious issue. Again, it's a heart issue. As we read in Malachi, we're told that it removes us from God's blessing. And in fact, the, the word the prophet uses there, it actually places us under a curse when we don't uh, respond to God this way. Now, in the Bible, to be under a curse from God meant to be outside of his blessing. This isn't a kind of a, a witchcraft sort of cursy thing, but it was outside of his blessing, outside of his protection, outside of his provision. It meant that you were operating independent of who God is, independent of his oversight, his intervention. You, you decided you could go your own way and it would be fine that way. But we... He also promises the blessing, right? That's the, that's the fifth word. So what kind of blessing is Malachi talking about here? Does Jesus talk about? Well, there are two extremes people can take when they talk about, when they teach on the blessing. The first extreme is what you may have heard of as kind of the, the health and wealth or prosperity gospel. This says, you know what? If you write a big enough check, if you hit that tithe, if you hit that offering, God will give you that new sports car. God, God will give you that, that new kitchen rental. God will give you all those things you need because, actually, he has to because you've given to him. And that is completely untrue and completely unbiblical, and it is destroying lives around the world. The other extreme, though, is, is just as off base, and that's the idea that, that God doesn't bless at all. The other extreme says that there's, there's no relationship with what we do with our finances and what, what God does and how God works in the world. See, the Bible does teach about the blessing of God. We saw that the, the opening song, the, the, the goodness of God. But what, what does that look like? Frankly, it's, it's up to God. God is God. It, it could be financial. By all means, God could, could bless your business to make it go well so that you can be more generous or, or whatever else. It could be the blessing of security, knowing who you are in Him. It could be the blessing of joy and, and depth of character and fulfillment and influence or, or more. There can be blessing from God on, on relationships and marriages and families. It could be finding contentment in any situation. Again, as we talked about in that contentment principle. But the blessing of God, it means that we can be confident that God will take care of us. Maybe not how we would picture it, but God will take care of us. 
in that Malachi passage in Malachi three that we read, where it made reference to it made reference to protecting the crops from pests and from fruit from spoiling. It seems that, that God's making clear that to those who follow Him uh, in this area, they won't have to worry about God taking away their supply. They won't lose ground because they're being generous. One writer says it's as if God is saying, "Listen, trust me enough and and care about me enough to do what I say in this area of financial money management." And in return, I will become supernaturally involved in your life in a unique way, bringing incredible levels of blessing, including a, a specific blessing that you will never have to worry and that your giving will, will never leave you without enough for your own needs. Take care of your stuff. Take care of your money in normal ways. Don't, don't binge. Don't go crazy on debt. It's like God saying, do your part and I'll do mine. See, as we aim for this tithe, as we aim for this 10%, it's not about, about losing that and then trying to, trying to make it on, on less, but it's about gaining what God has for us as well. So as we wrestle with these, we come back to our questions. Where do we want our hearts? And who is our leader? A little bit longer reference here, but Ryan Thomas has written on why charitable giving is different than faith-based giving. And he says this, that, that charitable giving, the recipient is a charity, a cause, or a person. And you give that way because you believe in that particular person, that organization, or that cause, uh, and believe that they can benefit from it. It's like uh, handing, you know, giving to the Hope Mission for a Christmas dinner, or giving to someone who's running in a, in a race to raise money for this thing. That, that's charitable giving. But he says, faith-based giving, the recipient is never a person, an organization, or a cause. With faith-based giving, you're giving your money to God. And so you're not giving money to your church, you're giving money through your church. He says, as a, as a faith-based giver, you give to God and only to God, not because of how the money will be used. The church is a proxy for God himself. Now, of course, as you give to and through a church, there is, uh, we should hold the church accountable to how they are spending that money. But, but the goal is not to, to, to write a check and say, well, listen, I, I wrote this check, ergo, this ministry should happen at the church. And you write the check and say, okay, God, use this to build your kingdom here. The church is a proxy for God himself in this. Charitable giving is, is given to charities out of charity. It's done out of generosity or, or altruism or philanthropy or, or benevolence or compassion. It's done out of the goodness of your heart. But faith-based giving, giving comes from an entirely different place. It's given as worship. It's an, an act of worship. It's about the pursuit of God. It's about the pursuit of, of his promised reward, a reward so good it puts you in an even better position than if you'd never given at all. David Platt writes this. He says that the church gladly gives its money in worship to God because he is more satisfying and more wonderful than anything money can buy. I like that. I heard one pastor also describe this by using the analogy of, of taking his kids to McDonald's. Can anyone uh, identify with taking kids to McDonald's? He said this. When, when my kids were little, they'd get hungry. We'd go to McDonald's. We'd grab some fries. And I'd be sitting there seeing them amply supplied with their you know, Happy Meal size fries, which I just bought. And I'd say to them, hey, can I have one? It says, and from the depths of their well-formed character and Jesus-like hearts, they would say, no. And I'd say, come on, I'm your dad. Just give me one fry. And they'd say, no, they're mine. I want them all. I said, I would say to them carefully and with feeling, listen, you don't understand. I paid for those fries. 
They were bought and you did not do the botting. <laughs> Second, not only did I buy them, but I can take them away. I can force you to give me whatever I want and however many I want. So you better be glad I'm only asking you for one. And third, kids, use your heads. If you treat me right, I'm the one that can buy you more fries. I am McDonald's and Burger King and Wendy's and five guys all rolled into one. You head up to the counter and try and get some more on your own and just see how well it works without me. But kids, I can walk up there. And not only can I come back with more fries, but I can go to the counter and I can say, supersize it. The pastor says, you know what God wants us all to get? We all have fries. And all God is asking for is a small number to be returned to him out of honor and gratitude and acknowledgement that, that he is the one who gave them to us. And then to use that for the extension of his work and, and his mission and his ministry. And when we say no to God in this, we're saying, you're not getting any of this, are you? He's, he says that. You're not getting this. I gave you those fries. I, I can take them away. And if you don't listen to what I'm trying to tell you, you realize I could bless you with more fries than you could ever eat. God's just asking for a bit. So how do we, how do we step into this? With our, our giving, the goal is to work towards that tithe. To take a step to get there. This isn't a, the, the tithe idea isn't an all or nothing. If you, if you go home and, and look at the books and like, man, there's no way I can get there, so I'm just going to stay at zero. Right? It's, it's, it's not that less than the full tithe is unacceptable. We, we start with where we can. And this is actually a really biblical idea. If we, if we read the text, there's lots of times where, where God will call his people to do something, but God's first word isn't finish this, accomplish this. It's start this way, begin this way. For example, when God was, was leading the Israelites into the promised land, he told them that they would have to take possession of it. They would have to do something to take possession of the land. But it was a lot of land, and it might take them months or even years to do it all. But if you look at Deuteronomy 2, 4, look at the language God says when he put this to him. He says, begin to take possession of it. He doesn't say, go do it all at once, as much as he says, start this, start it now, and I'll be with you every step of the way. It's the same with, with us and how we handle our finances. God is saying, start this, head in this direction. The expectation is not to arrive overnight, but to start. He's saying, position your heart here. Reroute your treasures this way. Acknowledge me as leader and honor me and trust me in this. So start with where you are. As God writes in that Malachi passage, test him in this, test me in this. So no matter where you're starting from, whether it's aiming for 1% or 10% or 20%, start and, and start gradually. But don't expect that this will happen naturally. Don't expect all of a sudden you can make a decision this morning, okay, I'm going to aim for 10%, and tomorrow morning, tomorrow morning everything's just going to sort of fall into place, and hey, there's your 10%. We need to be intentional about this. We need to, to plan for this. And for some of us, uh, even giving 1% or 2 or 3% to God and his work might be one of the most stretching steps of faith that you've ever taken, that we've ever taken. But it's a step out into the faith that, that God will honor you as you honor him, that he will provide for you and care for you in these things. Getting back to Matthew chapter 6, here's how Jesus talked about this faith component down in verse 31. So don't worry about these things, saying what we eat, what we drink, what we wear. Your heavenly Father knows all of your needs. 
but seek the kingdom of God above all else. Live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. Sounds a lot like the blessing talked about in Malachi, doesn't it? Now, if you're already at that 10%, would you challenge yourself to maybe get to 11 or 12? See, because the tithe isn't like paying off a bill. It's not, okay, I got there, check it off, put that out there for next month. It's a practice of faith. It's, it's kind of the floor, not the ceiling, as we said. As you wrap up, let me close with this. If you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, and, and money and faith and obedience are, are difficult issues, if you, you find yourself getting a little antsy or aggravated, or maybe you're thinking, you know what, I knew Sean was going to talk about this for these number of weeks. I hope this series would be done already, so I came this week, or whatever. If, if, you're, if these kind of bug you when we talk about money in the church, ask why. And maybe there's good reasons. I know the church has, has said some poor things about money, and forgive that. But maybe it's because it's your heart as well. You need to really wrestle with these things. Often, talking about money and finances and, and our stuff in the church is, is a touchy subject because we have work to do in our hearts. It's because these, these are heart issues. It's, it's going after where your heart's headed. It's going after who is the leader. Maybe your heart's getting pulled in a different direction and you want to lead yourself instead. That's why this is a hard thing to talk about. But how we handle our money is, is a life test. Jesus told parables on this too. We'll probably get there this summer. It's a faith test. And also, if you have already uh, said, Jesus, I'll follow you. If you're a follower of Jesus, are you willing to trust your eternity to God, but not your treasure, your finances in this life? This is what he's doing here. He's asking us to trust him. To trust the one who knows us, the one who loves us, the one who gave his son to us, the one who gives every good gift to us. Trust him. Let me pray. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you that you are gracious and compassionate, that you love us, that you are merciful, that you, you love the world so much that you sent Jesus that you gave us your son as a way to draw us back to you. Jesus, thank you that you came and, and you walked this earth just like we are now, that you, that you lived a life and showed us how to rightly relate to God and creation and others, and that you, you taught so clearly, and you, you, you knew the things that would try and trap us. You knew the things that would go after our hearts, and so you spoke bluntly on them. Thank you that you, you talked plainly about our stuff in the Sermon on the Mount in these verses we looked at today. Jesus, thank you that that you are generous to, that you gave your life for us, that you came, as I said, you, you walked, you showed us how to rightly relate to God and others in creation, and you lived a perfect life. And then you went to the cross, and you took the, the, the death we all deserve, the, the consequences we all deserve for, for our hearts going other ways, for us saying to God, you know what, God, I, I'm not going to test you in this. I'm going to believe that I know what I'm doing, and I'm going to go this way. Thank you, Jesus, that that's not the end of the story, that, that you, you died on the cross, but you were raised on the third day, conquering Satan, sin, and death, and, and you've created a way for us to, to claim your righteousness so that we can be in that relationship with the creator of the universe, the God of the universe that we were made to have. And so I pray, God, that, that you would challenge us, that you would speak to us, that Holy Spirit, you would, you would convict us where we need conviction about the way we, we handle all the things that you've given us. 
Again, this isn't rooted in, in the church needs something, but this is rooted in, God, you've been so generous. We want to handle things as you would have us handle them. Thank you that you love us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.